0: reading from 1 John chapter 1 taken from the First Nations version of the New Testament, the story of the Word of Life. There is one who has existed from the beginning. We heard his story. We saw him with our own eyes. We stared in wonder at him and touched him with our own hands. He is the one we call the Word of Life. This life was made known to us. We have seen it. We give witness to it and we are now telling you the story of the life of the world to come that never fades away, full of beauty and harmony. This life was with our Father, the Great Spirit has now been revealed to us. We are telling you about the things we have seen and heard so that you may share with us the same life We share in harmony with our Father, the Great Spirit, and His Son, Creator sets free Jesus, the Chosen One. We write these things to you so that our hearts can dance together in the circle of life. The Great Spirit is light, and in Him there is no darkness. This is the message we heard from the Chosen One and are now telling you. If we say we are in harmony yet walk a path of darkness, we are living a lie and not following the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we will be in harmony with each other. As the life blood shed by Creator sets free Jesus, the Son of the Great Spirit cleanses us from all our broken ways. If we say that we have no broken ways, we are lying to ourselves and the truth is not alive in us. If we name our broken ways, our Creator can be trusted to release us from them and purify us from all wrongdoing. If we say we have no, never walked in broken ways, we are lo- calling him a liar and his words are not at home in us. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
1: The passage of scripture that we have to look at this afternoon is so extraordinary that I almost hesitate to speak about it for fear of not being able to do it justice. If we comprehend it correctly, it will revolutionize our understanding of Jesus, heaven, earth, the kingdom of God, the resurrection, the Holy Spirit, and the mission of the church. It's easy for us to imagine that Acts really gets going with the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2. But Luke does not begin there. Even though he's told us about Jesus' resurrection appearances and his ascension, In the last chapter of his gospel, he repeats and in the case of the Ascension, he expands on what he wrote there. This is the foundation for the book of Acts. It's not just a literary device to link these two volumes, a kind of extended and now part two. What he says here will set the trajectory for the rest of the book. And if we understand them, the first 11 verses of chapter 1 will serve to explain why the events that Luke records in Acts happened. So if you have a Bible with you, uh, will you turn with me to Acts chapter 1? Uh, I think it will also appear on the screen. And we'll read, I promise you for the last time, verses 1 to 11 of chapter 1. I have promised that I'll move on to the next section next week. A month is probably enough on 11 verses. Acts chapter 1 verse 1. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself to them you have seen him go into heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Will you pray with me? In the words of the Acts of the Apostles, Spirit of the living God, fall afresh on us. Grant it to your servant to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal. And move in power through the name of your holy servant Jesus. Amen. In some translations, the first verses of Acts are titled the Ascension. And it doesn't seem like a big deal. Uh, Just three verses that we tend to think of as, well, Jesus saying goodbye. His departure is a bit peculiar, disappearing into a cloud. But this event was prophesied hundreds of years before it happened. And along with the crucifixion and resurrection, it is the pivotal event in the history of all creation. That's why Luke puts it at the end of his gospel and at the beginning of the book of Acts. All the way through the gospels we've been hearing about the kingdom of God. Here, Jesus ascends into heaven and is exalted to the right hand of the Father. This is the moment when Jesus is enthroned King of the Kingdom. And the rest of the book of Acts is the unfolding announcement to the ends of the earth that Jesus reigns. When we read a passage from the Bible and we're looking how to understand, uh, how to apply it to our own lives, a good place to start is to look for any commands that are given in the text. Do not commit murder, for example. Uh, The application of that is pretty clear, right? Well, in these first 11 verses of Acts chapter 1, most of us are initially inclined to think that the application of the passage is in verse 8 because we tend to look at verse 8 as if it's a command go and be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria and to the ends of the earth go and be witnesses but Jesus' words in verse 8 are not a command they're a promise when the Holy Spirit comes upon you you will receive power And you will be my witnesses. It's a double promise. The promise of new power. The ability to do a new thing that Jesus wants of his followers. And the promise of a new status. The status as witnesses for Jesus in the world. So two promises. You will receive power. You will be my witnesses. But there is a command in this passage. It comes a little earlier in verse 4. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my Father promised, which you heard me speak about, the Holy Spirit. The command here is wait. Wait for the Holy Spirit. And Jesus gives his disciples three reasons why they need to wait. And it's those three reasons that I want us to consider this afternoon. So number one, the first reason for waiting is power. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. We do not have the power to be Jesus' witnesses without the Holy Spirit. Now in one sense, when Jesus says to his disciples that they must wait for power from the Holy Spirit in order to be his witnesses, that seems a little odd. They've been with him these past three years. They've witnessed his actions and his teaching. They've witnessed his death on the cross. They've witnessed his resurrection. How can they not be qualified already to speak about what they've seen and heard? Jesus could have used a different term for his disciples than witnesses. Earlier in the passage, the twelve are called apostles. That's from the Greek uh, verb to send. Uh, They are sent ones, messengers. Jesus could have used that term for all of his followers. He could have sent us into the world as his messengers. But he doesn't. The word Jesus does use, witness, is a legal term. In a court of law, a witness is someone who provides evidence either for the prosecution or for the defense. So the question is, if we're to be witnesses, who is on trial? Jesus. Our friend Darrell Johnson puts it this way. Jesus uses the language and imagery of the courtroom because he is now on trial in the world. He's made huge claims about himself. He's claimed from the beginning of his ministry that in him and because of him, the long-awaited kingdom of God is breaking upon the world. Heaven is invading earth. Can he substantiate his claim? Can he point the world to any concrete evidence that demonstrates the truth of his claims? Yes, you and me. We're the evidence that what Jesus said is true. We're the evidence that he is the Good Shepherd. We're the evidence that he is the light of the world. We are the evidence that he is the Savior, the Messiah, the Lord of Lords, and the King of Kings. You see, you and I are not just his messengers, We are the message. We're the evidence that what he says about himself is true. Now, how do you feel about being the evidence for Jesus in the courtroom of the world? That's why we need power. On my very best day, I cannot begin to live up to that. But Jesus says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses, my evidence, in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and Vancouver. The first reason Jesus' disciples need to wait for the Holy Spirit is power. The second reason they need to wait is to receive the plan. And Jesus says to them that they'll be his witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Isn't that the plan? Well, yes, at least it's the big picture. But when we read the rest of Acts, we see that without the Holy Spirit's direction, the church would not know how to go about God's mission in the world. Time and again, the Spirit provides the impetus for a change of direction Or the start of something new. Even the Apostle Paul, the the great scholar of the Hebrew scriptures, the greatest strategic missionary thinker in the history of the church, even the Apostle Paul did not know how to go about the mission of Jesus without the instruction and the correction of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit alone is in command of the plan of of the mission of God in the world. So, two reasons for the disciples to wait for the Holy Spirit power and plan. The third reason they had to wait is perhaps a little less obvious because it's not so explicitly stated by Jesus. It is understanding, or or more strictly, misunderstanding. They need to wait because of their lack of understanding. At the Last Supper, Jesus said to them, The Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. And there are two points at which the disciples show their lack of understanding. In verse 6, they say to Jesus, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? They're still failing to understand the nature of the kingdom of God. And the second is in verse 11. They're looking up into the sky. And these two men dressed in white stand beside them and say, Men of Galilee, why do you stand here looking into the sky? They don't comprehend Jesus' departure, his ascension. So two things that they don't yet understand. The kingdom and the ascension. And this is the heart of the word of God for us this afternoon. Because we still struggle to understand these very same things. It's extraordinary that the disciples haven't understood the kingdom, isn't it? Jesus came preaching the good news that the kingdom was at hand. For three years, he taught them about the kingdom. Most of the parables that Jesus tells recorded in Luke's gospel are about the kingdom of God. And here, in Acts 1 verse 3, Luke tells us, Jesus appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. But the disciples are still confused about the kingdom. Why? Well, Their understanding of the coming kingdom of God was shaped by the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament. And in the Old Testament there are many passages pointing to the idea that Israel would experience national restoration. Isaiah chapter 2 for example says, In the last days the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains, It will be exalted above the hills, and all nations will stream to it. There are similar passages to that in all all sorts of places in Isaiah. And you find them again in Ezekiel, in Jeremiah, in Amos, and so on and so on. For Jesus' disciples, the, the picture of the kingdom they had was this political and nationalistic one. Centred on the restoration of the fortunes of Israel, the return of its ancient borders, and its elevation above the other nations. Jesus, their anticipated Messiah, had come. He hadn't acted as they'd expected him to, but now he's been resurrected. So surely now is the moment for him to become king over Israel defeat israel's enemies and establish god's kingdom in israel so it's not surprising really that their response to jesus saying that the new age the age of the holy spirit was going to happen in a few days is for them to ask lord are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to israel now of course their vision of what god was doing in christ was was far too small They were thinking of Jesus as a king like King David. David had been persecuted whilst a false king, Saul, sat on the throne of Israel. Perhaps, having suffered, Jesus, like David, would now triumph and take the throne and lead Israel to glory. But Jesus responds, It is not for you to know the times or the dates the Father has set by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. You see how Jesus' response is an answer to their question. He is addressing their expectations of power. He is addressing the the fate of the nation in relation to the rest of the world. Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? It's easy for us to assume that Jesus' words are a rebuke. That his answer is, no, why are you still going on about Israel? Haven't you understood anything? But in fact, Jesus' answer is, yes. Yes. This is the very moment that the kingdom is going to come. Jesus himself is the true Israel. The servant of God spoken about by the prophet Isaiah. Yes, the kingdom is about to be restored to Israel. Jesus is about to be enthroned. But not simply king over Israel. King over everything. A day is coming when every knee will bow to Jesus, the King of the Jews. Now we too all too easily misunderstand the kingdom. Our hope for the future can be just as deeply held and we can be just as mistaken as the first disciples. Perhaps you've heard the saying, Christianity is not pie in the sky when you die, it's cake on the plate while you wait. I'm not entirely convinced by that second line, but that first line is surely right. Christianity is not pie in the sky when you die, it's not a ticket to heaven. But that is the popular view of the Christian message in our culture. If you're good then you go to heaven when you die that's what many people think Christians believe when we die we leave this rotten earth behind and we go to a better place somewhere along the way Christians got the idea that the good news is that if you believe the right things you and I get to go to heaven when we die but Jesus doesn't seem to say that instead he says things like the kingdom of God is at hand repent and believe the good news what good news? the good news that the kingdom God's reign on earth as it is in heaven is at hand in Jesus life, death, resurrection and ascension the kingdom of God has been inaugurated on earth. And that's why Jesus spends the 40 days of his resurrection appearances to his disciples speaking to them about the kingdom. The kingdom of heaven is breaking into the world. It seems that many of us think, that the king, uh, think of the kingdom of God as heaven. It's a, it's a place that we go to when we die. But the Bible teaches us that the kingdom is God's sovereign, saving rule, coming on earth as it is in heaven. And Jesus' resurrection is the evidence, the first fruits of the new age breaking into the world today. See I think we misunderstand the relationship between earth and heaven. We assume that heaven and earth, well, they're a long way away from each other and and they're different in kind. But the Bible doesn't teach that. What's the great threat in the Old Testament to God's people when they're disobedient? There is a God in heaven. Now that's a warning to those on earth precisely because of how close the heavenly observer is. Tom Wright says heaven and earth are the overlapping interlocking spheres of God's good creation. The transition of Jesus from earth to heaven is not Jesus going away to somewhere else. Heaven is present when we pray, worship, read scripture, serve the poor in Jesus name. In the incarnation jesus comes as god into humanity's space earth in the ascension jesus as human goes into god's space heaven his transformed body is now the beginning of god's new creation and in god's new creation heaven and earth will come together we won't go to heaven when we die Because heaven is coming here. Now if you're not sure about that. Read Revelation chapter 21. Very clear in that chapter. Heaven. The place where God reigns supreme. Is breaking into this place. Until one day. God's supreme reign will be acknowledged. Everywhere. So the first thing that Jesus' disciples misunderstand, and we all too easily misunderstand too, is the kingdom. The second thing that Jesus' disciples misunderstand, and we all too easily misunderstand too, is Jesus' ascension. Verse 9, After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. There it is, the ascension. Just one verse. It appears so insignificant, an incident, doesn't it? Luke goes on. Two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said. Why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you've seen him go into heaven. Now because of their view that the coming of the kingdom would involve the the restoration of the nation of Israel the disciples can't believe that Jesus has gone without accomplishing that. They're expecting something more. So they're staring up into the sky. How can he be gone? How can he have said all that he said? How can he have made all the promises he made? Then just go. Nothing's changed. The poor are still poor. The hypocritical religious leaders are still in power. The Romans still occupy Palestine. He must be going to do more. They've forgotten their Old Testament. Or oh, perhaps they're thinking of Elijah. Certainly this scene is reminiscent of the scene in which Elijah is taken up to heaven in a whirlwind. Leaving a double portion of his spirit for his disciple, Elisha. But there's much more to this ascension of Jesus than that. The clue, I think, is in the cloud. This is not Jesus transported up to heaven on a rain cloud. All through the Old Testament, clouds appear as a sign of God's presence. From the pillar of cloud that leads the people of Israel through the wilderness to the cloud that surrounds the top of Mount Sinai as Moses met with God and received the Ten Commandments. Clouds signify the glory of God, and nowhere more so than in the book of Daniel. In Daniel chapter 7, Daniel the prophet receives a vision from God. He says this In my vision at night, I looked. And there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed." All through his ministry, Jesus uses this title, Son of Man, for himself. It means human being, truly human one. Jesus shows us what it is to be human as God intended. But Jesus is also making a deliberate reference back to Old Testament passages such as Daniel chapter 7. At the Ascension, Jesus, the Son of Man, is taken up on the clouds of heaven and led into the presence of the Father, the Ancient of Days. There, in heaven's throne room, he is given all authority, glory, and sovereign power. He is enthroned king over all nations, and his kingdom will never end. That's what Luke is telling us is going on here. Jesus is going into heaven to be crowned king. Incidentally, that's what the angels mean when they say to the disciples that Jesus will come back in the same way they've seen him go into heaven. They don't mean that he's coming back in the clouds, though that may very well be the case. They mean that he's coming back in such a way that everyone will know that no one will be in any doubt that Jesus is on the throne of the universe, King of heaven and earth. Why do the disciples have to wait for the Holy Spirit? Because they need power to be evidence. For Jesus in the world because they need his plan to direct them as they go to the ends of the earth but they also need to wait to proclaim Jesus kingdom until Jesus is crowned King. Tom Wright says the Apostles are to go out as heralds not of someone who may become king at some point in the future but of one who is already appointed and enthroned. And this transforms what Jesus says when he promises that we will be his witnesses. See, how did people in the ancient world know that there was a new king? They didn't have television or internet or newspapers even. Somewhere out of their sight, the king was enthroned. But the people came under his reign as they heard the heralds announce it. In the world of the first century, when someone was enthroned as king, that new authority would take effect through heralds going off through the territory in question with the news, We have a king. Jesus is king. People just don't know it yet. The good news is that Jesus' reign is here, people just haven't heard. And we are his witnesses. More than messengers announcing his reign, we are the evidence that Jesus is King. As we go in the power of the Spirit, following his plan to the ends of the earth, more and more people will come to acknowledge The reign of Christ. Will you pray with me? Jesus, we believe that you are enthroned in the heavens. You are the king of heaven and earth, of all that is. And we acknowledge that you are on trial in this world. We are amazed that you've chosen us as your witnesses, your evidence and the announcers of your reign. We recognize how much we need to be filled with your spirit in light of this role. And so today we pray this one prayer. Holy Spirit, fall afresh on us. Amen. You've been listening to the First Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. For more sermons and information about our church's services and programs, please visit firstbc.org.